Welcome to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill, and I'll be leading you on this adventure. We'll be getting into deep discussions about classic records, profiles on up-and-coming bands, and interviews with your favorite artists. You can check out new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. Before we get started, I just want to thank everyone who's been listening and sharing the show on their social media. I see the numbers, and it really warms my heart to see that somebody's out there. For this week's episode, we have Eugene Robinson, author, vocalist, and frontman for Oxbow, martial artist, and fellow podcaster who hosts not one, but two shows. He has his own show called Show Stomper, where he primarily talks about MMA and the newly launched Ozzy Confidential. I've been a fan of Eugene's for the past two decades. I love Oxbow, a band that's pretty much hard to classify, and that's exactly why I love him so much. And in general, I think he's an all-around interesting guy. If any of you guys want to hit me up, my main social media is Instagram and Facebook. You can follow me at Alleged Mike Hill on Instagram. That's where I post about the show and a bunch of like personal stuff and whatnot. On Facebook, I'm Michael Hill. There's literally thousands of guys named Mike Hill out there, so please pay attention. <laughs> you can DM me on either platform if you want to talk about the show, let me know what you like or what you don't like, if you want to make recommendations or suggestions. I might not pay attention to those, but give it a shot. We'll see what happens. Also, if you're on Gimme Radio, you can check out my DJ show. It's called The Sacred and Profane. It's a two-hour show where I play everything from Susie and the Banshees to Morbid Angel to Agnostic Front to Dark Throne to Gigi Allen to and whatever, whatever I want. Well, I got to tell you, honestly, man, I forgot we were doing it. Oh, shit, really? <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah, yeah. But, but I see your name pop up. I go, oh, your bike doesn't call me with bullshit, so it's got to be <laughs> it's gonna be something good. All right, so. All right, man. So there's a lot of things that people might know you for. In addition to being a frontman of Oxbow, I mean, you know, I, I first, uh, as far as like your podcasts go, I started listening to the Knuckle Up podcast to listen, you know, talk about fights and all that sort of stuff. And then yep. the uh, the Show Stomper podcast. And then now there's the, the Ozzy Confidential show, which, uh, yep. you know, is a brand very, relatively new. Yep. Brand, brand new, right? Yeah. I mean, you're also the editor over at Ozzy too, right? Yeah, yeah, editor at large. Editor yeah, at large. Yeah. yeah. So as a musician, one of the things, there is, um, there's a quote that I pulled out of one of the more, your recent episodes where you said, I will continue doing music until I have outlasted my enemies. Now, what do you mean by that exactly? Um, I, I, you know, it's like, it's like being the, um, it, I don't know, it was something kind of along the lines of being um, the attractive but quiet girl in the class, <laughs> you okay. know, that kind of thing. And I mean, largely, and this is not, I'm not going to say it's bedeviled me, because to say it's bedeviled me seems to give a nod to the outrage culture that we built up where everybody feels sensitive about everything and that they need to be paid attention to and honored because they're such wonderful beings. I, I'm not saying it like that, but always pretty typically for the greater portion of my life, the fact that I was physically, um, large, um, it, it's not something that, 
people never automatically imbued my character or characterization with things like smarts or intelligence, which is fine. It's like uh, Al Pacino said in The Devil's Advocate. You know, you ne- never let them see you coming. So the fact that uh, at first blush, people never felt that I was smart <laughs> was, 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 was fine. You know, um, it, it worked out in my favor. And I also, you know, have you know, a a touch of a spectrum disorder where I'm just not really noticing shit like that in any way. But I remember when I started really paying attention to music in 1977 in a way that was deeply earnest. Uh, You know, I come from a family of journalists and, you know, I remember my stepfather, you know, hanging out with Curtis Mayfield and Chaka Khan and bringing me home, you know, signed autographs. And I started really paying attention to music, uh, he, he was into salsa music uh, most especially, but he did R&B as well. And um, I remember going to shows and watching people and there I had like a corrective function in my brain where I was like, yeah, boy, that would have been so good if the guy had just done this instead of this. Now in a parallel track, I've been on stage doing some sort of performative thing since I was like two and my mother entered me into some competition, right? So I've been, from age of five or six and it was my first play and then you know stage musicals and but lost the taste for that like you know it just seemed like you know like i remember robert mitchum and a certain character of like 1940s actor they just felt like that it was certain unmanly to a certain degree like acting seemed simple to them and not weighty and so i at you know 15 or 16 i was still going on auditions for stuff but i started to largely feel like um, uh, uh, it was it was the the endeavor of the impotent, right? I mean, I I couldn't get off unless somebody in some office somewhere gave it an approval. Versus these people who I was going to see at shows who just did it. So I like the idea. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do it. Fuck it. You know, I'm gonna start doing music. Um, but then I remember like the band. There were bands that were, you know, ascendant and and um and winning by all indications, but that were absolute shit. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? and, um, and, I, and, I, and I don't mean that in a taste way, like, you know, you can't dismiss this with, uh, you know, uh, the dude throwaway line of, well, that's just like your opinion, man. No, I think qualitatively, there's some, there was some stuff that was poorly conceived, poorly executed, poorly thought out, done by people of substandard intellect, and and not any kind of significant art at all, you know. Um, and I remember thinking, buying the media thing of like, well, music is something that you do, the kids do. And at, at some point, I'll age out of it and and do something serious. But you know, I kept seeing these guys who I thought were shitty making worse music over time, hanging around. And I go, oh, it's pretty clear to me that my mission is to endure. Endure, you know, let let the right. What is that phrase about? Let the good make right this evil wrong. <laughs> that I would endure, you know, expressing an artistic vision for longer than people were expressing bad, you know, artistic kind of vision. So, that that's I think was what went behind that quote. And sure enough, bit by bit, I've seen these you know substandard talents drop off the map, and you know then some of them have attempted comebacks in certain ways. And uh, it's just amused me. And still to this day, I mean, the somebody was just complaining. Oh, Chris Esty, who writes for that 
paper up in Seattle. Um, he was a quote from a woman, Eva Walker. He was saying about how she's sick of getting stuff from record labels where everybody looks the same. If you don't have any, any, if all of your stuff looks the same, it's probably all going to sound the same and don't even fucking bother sending it to me. And I, and I, the comment that I left was like, if you only knew how hard it is for Oxbow to get a record deal, like even still, still, you know, even after, you know, Thin Black Duke still, you know, Hydra Head is supposed to be, by the end of this year, going to cease operations again. So we need a new fucking label. And so I've been sending feelers out and people are like, no, no. Okay. You do know that we fund most of our stuff, right? Because we, we don't expect anybody else to pay $55,000 for a record. We got that. You do know that we tour, that we've got a schedule. We've got a bit. You have read the reviews. We have, you know, PR people who work for us with reduced rates. You understand all that. And still, you're not interested. I, you know, I'm not a paranoid man, but I'm a paranoid man. And, and so, um, one, I'm railing against substandard, the creation of substandard art. And two, I, I'm railing against the prevailing trends toward, you know, suckitude, man. I just, I, 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 I have a constitutional distaste for it. And I don't care whether it's art necessarily, uh, literature too, you know, um, uh, uh, painting as well, dance as well. I mean, politics as well. I don't like to, uh, man, I mean, my biggest problem with a guy like Trump is I, you might be the greatest fucking sax player ever, but I absolutely positively don't want you working on my car. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, there's different specialties that people have and exactly. that should, they should work within that context. Right. And it, I think things work better. <laughs> If, if people, if people, you know, they're, they're multi-talents, some people who can do lots of things well. Um, but there are very few of the people that I know that I see that are like that. Some do, some can. Um, but generally I think the worst thing in life would be to have whatever skills you have be misapplied. So it's a, it was a complicated answer. I'm sorry, but that's kind of, you know, on the one hand it was, you know, an easy cheap seat line. Yeah, I'm going to do but you know, I'm going to outlast my enemies, but in reality, that's kind of really what I'm thinking and how I approach business, commerce, you know, journalism, whatever it is, you know, I mean, I'm still competing with guys who, who, who I, who I went to school with, who I could see thought, what the fuck is this guy doing here? And then you add in the race factor. So I'm big and I'm black and they just, nobody ever thought I would do anything. You, you, do you know how many X's I've had? who, when they caught up with me, courtesy of Facebook, expressed some sort of statement of disbelief and an acknowledgement that, boy, I guess I got you all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now, I can relate to that, man, because, I mean, you know, I, I, oftentimes I get misunderstood by people as well, um, you know, on the physical end of things and being surprised that I actually know what the hell I'm talking about most of the time. Yep, so. yep. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't aggressively rankle me because it, it happens it happens so often. But the only time when I find myself getting really irked is like, you know, when I'm standing on Sunset Boulevard and Flea tries to run me down on his fucking Mercedes. Then I get a little irked. It's not enough that you got the Mercedes, but that you got to try to run me down. Get the fuck out of here. You know, well, that was actually another question I had is what exactly do you have against the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Well, you read the article, right? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the thing is, you know, these guys, I mean, look, we played a show with Perfect Circle, right? And uh, 
and uh, they sort of fucked us. I don't. I I, I kind of like the way they fucked us. It was amusing. They said, "Oh, we're gonna play with Perfect Circle. Great, cool. That's exciting." I said, "But there's a catch." Okay. Well, what's the catch? Well, they don't have enough songs to headline. Okay. So you guys are gonna headline. No, oh, no. <laughs> You know, I know Danny Mariano, right, from the Northside 40 Kings, the guy who punched out Danzig, and they, the same thing happened there. I mean, realistically, what you just don't – it doesn't make any sense to do that, right? So, but we said that we were in that period of anytime, anywhere, you know, we're going to fucking we're gonna, – we're going to do whatever they ask we're going to do. So we said, sure. And, you know, it was sold out, and we do make a changeover real quick. And, uh, and, you know, about half the audience, when it realized it wasn't going to be Tool in disguise, they left. And in the end, we had as many people as we would have had for Oxbow anyway, as well as some new people who discovered it just by accident, which was cool. But I remember dealing with Maynard, and the whole time, since the first time I saw him, was them Tool opening for the Rollins oh, band yeah, I remember in, that in, tour, yep. in, yeah, in Tijuana. And I remember thinking that his bona fides came from the punk rock hardcore world. But then after after working with the whole Perfect Circle thing, I kind of came to the conclusion that that his background was, again, very different. It's okay. People, you know, if you were into this type of shit in 86, it probably, you probably, you probably came from, you know, you probably came from, from hardcore or punk rock or something, but it's been long enough and he's young enough where, you know, maybe he was listening to Rush and somebody mentioned something or he saw a sticker on somebody's skateboard or jacket. He just decided to make the jump. Right. Sure. Um, and in the same way, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, they started pretty fucking early. I remember Whipping Boy's old bass player bought the first record and he was trying to get me into it. And, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, true men don't kill coyotes. It's, it's kind of catchy, but. You know, I'm a vocalist and therefore like a lyricist, and I just wasn't ever really jibing with, um, you know, his his word word play. I didn't find it sophisticated or interesting or compelling. C- compare that to somebody like the Germs, right. where I think Darby was an a- absolute revelation as a, as a lyricist. So it started with that, but I tried to give him a chance. I tried to give him a chance. They worked with George Clinton. I love George Clinton. I tried to. And then, you know, then we had that whole show thing. And then, you know, again, I figured, you know, these guys, their bona fides are hardcore punk, man. Flea, you know, Flea was there. Flea was at the show. I mean, he was legitimate, like one of those, like OG, right? You can say, man, I was at uh, Okie Dogs in 1979. Flea would have been the 12 years old with a skateboard would have been there. So I figure, okay, I'm fucking naked on stage. The cops are coming down the aisles. Uh, you know, and I and I'm I'm looking for, I would I was looking for semi a semi expression of solidarity as a headliner. They could have waved a hand and taken care of that shit right away, instead of having me hauled off to fucking jail. I was, you know, I wised up and got dressed as I see the cops coming toward me because I did not want to go to jail. But um, it's a real real quick I, continuity check here. We started yeah. we started talking about Perfect Circle, okay. And, uh, yeah, so, okay. so the, 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 parallel, the parallel was that, you know, I expected that, that Maynard had come from a hardcore background and would have understood. In actual fact, I think he came from like a metal thing, right. in which case he's management and he's completely okay with that. With the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I expected, okay, they're not management. They're from the fucking streets. They understand that they would have, you know, that they would have come to our defense or helped out somewhat to a certain degree. 
And in the end, you know, at that point, they had been already famous for 10 years. I mean, by famous mind book, I mean, not doing anything else to make a living. And uh, and I look up and I looked into the eyes of management, you know. Right, right. So, so I mean, um, so that and that is completely separate from the quality of work they produce, which I think is I think they're great musicians. But again, my problem coheres around Kiedis. He's a horrible singer and he's a fucking horrible lyricist. And I hate it. I hate it. Hmm. Didn't uh, you were saying Flea tried to run you over at one point, too, right? Yeah, we, I was down in L.A. Uh, about to master either Fuckfest or King of the Jews. So I, it was at uh, K-Disc when John Golden worked there. I mean, you know, in all fairness, what do I know? Maybe it was an accident. Maybe he just thought I was a homeless guy. Maybe he wrecked it. Maybe he didn't. But, you know, the rest of it happened as I detailed, you know. So just uh, circling back to the concept of there being substandard art out there, do you think a lot of that has to do with how easy it is these days to just to pretty much do anything? I mean, you can self-publish a book. You can make uh, a record on your phone. Uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that would be, you know, that would be to give credence to the old kind of gatekeeping system before, you know, where, um, you know, the cat from Atlantic, whose name I can't remember, you know, was actually perceptive enough to sign the Rollings. Look, I interviewed Chris Blackwell, right, from Island Records. He signed Tom Waits and Madonna and, you know, uh, or no, no, he's Tom Waits and uh, Grace Jones, you know, I mean, tons of famous records, right, police. And I remember saying, like, so what happened with Madonna? And he goes, ah, I kind of fucked that one up. And I, he goes, I just didn't see it. She wasn't a great dancer. She wasn't a great singer. I, you know, I went to the Peppermint Lounge to see her play. You know, the audience wasn't that big. I just wasn't impressed, man. I didn't see it. Didn't have the foresight. to. So that's the old model where one guy is all of a sudden like some kind of genius. And, you know, people give him lots of credit. I'm okay. I mean, Albini has talked about it. You know, the democratization of, 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 of music. I don't think that's what's made it worse. I think what's made it worse is that... Um, Here's something. You're you're in a band, and so you, you'll know what I'm talking about. You ever watch a movie about musicians, and then you're sitting there watching it, and while you're watching it, you have a total fucking moment of clarity, and you realize that people who make movies, a parallel art almost, know nothing about music. They have they always get it wrong. In fact, up to and including the actors, the only actors that can effectively play musicians are actors who in real life had been musicians. And that, that's not many, right? Like Gary Busey was great as Buddy Holly because Gary Busey was a real musician before. I didn't you know, know that. Who, I didn't know that he yes. actually had a music background. That's cool. I know that. Fuck yes. And uh, Billy Bob Thornton is another oh, yeah. one. Serious, like, can play. like people make fun of him now, but he's no Keanu Reeves. I mean, he was playing fucking concerts and touring and shit well before he got into the acting thing, right? So, um... And it continues when they look, uh, 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 Quaid, you know, there was a lot of fireworks, a lot of fun and fireworks when Quaid was playing fucking Jerry, uh, Lee, uh, Jerry, yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis, but it still didn't ring true. And even Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, you kind of watched it and there was something kind of over the top about always about Freddie Mercury and Queen. But if you're a person in the band, you know, you're sitting there and just going, this is part of the problem, man. <laughs> this, is what, this is what people think we do. Actually, and this is how people... Do you know, huh? Did you ever see a movie called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains? 
No, no, I've never seen. You this. want to see a movie about, and, and it really does feel. I mean, Fee, Fee Waybill was in it actually from the Tubes. Okay, so, so there yep, you go. Yep. He plays okay. like this washed up like heavy metal singer. And uh, Diane Lane's in it. She's like in the front. Oh, I remember this. Oh, dude. I remember this. It actually feels like someone who knows about the struggles of being in like a punk band in like the late 70s, early 80s wrote the script for this. And it is actually, I think, pretty realistic about how, you know, there's a band from overseas. They come over to the States. They're playing in bowling alleys in front of like five people. Yep. Yep. You know, the drug abuse, you know, people fucking each other, like all this stuff. It's really... That's one of the only films I think I've ever seen to really um, represent that sort of struggle. You know what I mean? Right. Well, that's, you know, I mean, we had, I mean, everybody in Oxbow is married now. And I remember uh, Dan, our bass player, has been married the longest. And I remember at one point his wife, you know, our tours were getting longer and longer. And she was like, uh, you know, I'm not just going to sit at home. I'm going to go because she thought we were having fun like in the movies. <laughs> yeah, and, right. and she and she did one tour with us, and uh, and I don't think she ever repeated it, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's not yeah, fun. Okay. There's other fun about it, you know. <laughs> no. And, but this affects, you know, I remember going, when we, uh, when Chicarelli got nominated for a Grammy, and we went to the Grammys, and, uh, and there were some bands playing before Brad Paisley played, and 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 I was looking to see if people in the audience could tell a difference between shit and, and champagne, and they couldn't. You know, everything about Brad Paisley was perfect. The sound was perfect. His outfit was perfect. He it, it was his his everything was fucking perfect. I don't have a bad thing to say about the quality of what he produced, but it was absolutely and completely without soul <laughs> sure and, and so many of the bands i saw there were like la perfect like you can tell that the people that their connection to music was primarily visual they looked perfect but there's no fucking soul because they've been directing all their energies toward you know aping a look that they saw in a movie somewhere that they figured out is how rock life is supposed to be i mean the fact that we've been ignored consistently it's actually sort of helped, right? I mean, you know, I got rid of my careerist notions about music in the 80s, the late 80s, when I realized, well, if I could make 60 grand a year doing a desk job, you know, or 20 grand a year hanging out in rusty vans playing shows, which would I do? And it became pretty clear to me that I, I love being a musician, but I also love eating, yeah. you know? Yeah. So at that point, I go, okay, I'm going to do the desk job. And I'm going to keep, so where does that put music making? Well, music making at that point is like a fucking hobby, like golf is for some people or fucking poker, right? Which is fine. I can free from the marketplace. I can create cool shit. And if people don't like it, oh, well, you know, and that really, I didn't have to make any kind of compromises or yield or, or do anything except just amuse ourselves, which is pretty easy to do. Yeah, that's there's definitely something freeing about that, you know, because then you don't have to really, or you're not beholden to like some sort of trend or people's perception, and you know, you you satisfy your own creative impulses, and if anyone sort of that has a similar impulse or a similar interest gets on board, then that's a plus. Right, 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 right. So, um, so that's where we are. So you know, back to Whipping Boy, which which is operating more like in the punk sort of world. And uh, 
how did that lead to Oxbow, which has like a very sort of like a, actually an incredibly hard to pin down sort of sound? Well, I mean, structurally, it um, it was as uncomfortable as democracy is, right? And I remember, I don't know, I remember it was Aristotle or somebody like that who out of the five types of government, he put, he put democracy down at the bottom of the list, right? Um, and you're going for a, a lowest common denominator or maybe in a better, kindlier way to put that would be a happy medium. And um, so, you know, Whipping Boy was started by me and Steve Ballinger and you know, at a certain point had involved Ron Issa, who had been in that band Grim Reality, then later in that band Blast, and, you know, Steve Shaughnessy on drums, who'd been in a, now he's old, like five years old, I've been in a, not the Sleepers, but a band, you know, that was kind of coincident to the Sleepers, and then you know, Bart Thurber, who runs a studio, and then Nico. Um, but then I, I realized that I was having to, ah, uh, I mean, I had gotten into the habit of playing stuff to communicate musical ideas um, because, you know, Steve Ballinger originally couldn't understand any of that because I don't know what you're talking about. So he was just figure out. So I picked up the bass, picked up keyboards, and I'd come from a background where I used to play the banjo and violin, weird stuff when I was a kid. So I thought I could communicate that way. And then I remember saying, I, I, I just what would I do if I didn't have to do it with anybody? Like what type of music would I make? And then of course I had this kind of terrible collapsing relationship with this uh, woman, which I never really talk about. I mean, I, I say that Fuckfest was designed to be a, uh, a suicide note, but uh, <laughs> I hadn't told people why I was suicidal necessarily. But of course it was something completely mundane, like, you know, collapsing relationship. And uh, so I really wanted to do make a, a musical notation of what, what what it was that was going on in my mind. Then I remember talking to Biafra and saying that he was like, well, what are you doing with your music now? I said, well, I'm really wanting to do something where I can capture the music in my head. And he goes, well, aren't we all? And I go, oh, OK, he's not really understanding what I'm talking about. Sort of he is. And I like this comment about, you know, aren't we all? I guess that's what everybody's doing. I said, but I, I'm hearing sounds is what I'm talking about. And the motions are, have sounds that accompany them, you know? And I'd like to, so I remember initially I'd gone into Bart who ran the studio. We lived in the same house and the studio was in the house. So I said, look, I'll cut some of the money off your rent, put it toward the studio fee. And then let me start. So I laid down some drum tracks and it was just, it was interfering with the, process of expression and I, and I think I played a little bass I just go fuck this like, let me talk to Nico and, and so I wrote Nico a long letter explaining what I wanted it to sound like I laid out the songs for Fuckfest and I, I played him what I'd recorded already and he goes okay what about this and we created Fuckfest right um, perfect note beginning to end it really solid he came up with a theory for it so it was great to have you know uh, what do you call a field marshal <laughs> who, who, who came up with, with, a, you know, a, a, an idea, a structure, an ethos, a name, name of songs, lyrics, and then just be able to turn that over to, you know, turn that over to, to the elves <laughs> and say, look, I want you, none of this. Well, you know, 
what would you do with your part? Fuck that. It's not your part. This is, you know, like the Italians say, siempre in derito, always in this direction, you know, toward, you know, the illusory being called Oxbow, you know. So it was, um, I mean, that's how you're supposed to create art, whereas Whipping Boy was kind of more little rascals, right? Yeah. Hey, man, let's start a band, man. And what, what kind of band? I don't know. Let's play hardcore music. You know, I mean, it's hard to categorize what Oxbow is because it never had its birth. It never had its birth in, you know, in this idea that, uh, you know, we're going to be a type of band. We're going to be a ska band or a skate band. Or, and I've had friends who've done that, who've said, I, you know, I've seen them. They go, OK, what about this, man? We're moving on from ska. We're going to be a skate band. I go, well, you got to be a, you got to skate to be. Fuck. And some of those guys have actually hit it big. And and rather than laugh at them, like I'm completely happy for them, and I'm thinking very specifically of uh, uh, Vinny Stigma. <laughs> I remember I, I remember talking to him at odd times. He's like, and he almost broke his neck on the skateboard. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Get off that board! And he's like, no, no, fuck that, man. I'm gonna be. We're gonna be a skate band next. So I remember being there when they formed Agnostic Front when John Watson was the singer. And I was like, ah, this was actually pretty, this is all right, man. You pulled it off. And so, you know, 30 fucking years later, dude is playing stadiums. I'm like, good for you, bro. Good for you, you know. Yeah, dude, I'd probably kill myself on a skateboard, man. I just, I never was able to get the hang of that stuff. And I, I was all right. I was good. But, you know, at this point now, I got room in my life for one dangerous sport. Yeah. And it's not going to be skateboarding. No, so. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's one of the things about Oxbow too. Is like I, you can never really put your finger on it. I hear so many different things in the band's sound. You know, it's like there's well the the unique characteristic of your voice too. I mean, you don't sound yeah. like anyone else either. So like, so what what the hell is that all about? You know what I mean? Like, well, that but you know what's weird about that? I remember you know one of the like the, one of the coolest things about about like hanging you know like you meet meet somebody new one of the coolest things for me was always to go over the hot over to their house right um, because you're always used to your own shit and you know the, the sublime joys of like you know like the way they may have put their toothbrushes in their tooth you know i mean, just little fucking things these details and it, but at a certain point i kind of realized like i go how come my place is not like anybody else's place. <laughs> and people are like, well, what are you talking about? I go, well, other people, their places like seem nice, right? Like it's a reflection of their inner world, right? Right. But my my place doesn't seem that way. And I go, well, what does your place seem like? I said, I don't know. It feels comfortable to me. I like it to me. But there's something something distinctly strange about it. It's like off off kilter. And then finally, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time, we analyzed it, and he said, well, let's look around the room. And, and he said, stuff appears, you know, you adopt stuff, and you've embraced it and absorb it, but there's no coherency here. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Like I had a couch. I inherited the couch. That's why the couch is there. It was like the, the Bremen Town musicians, you know? I just found this haphazard group of shit. There's my bookshelf. How'd that bookshelf get there? Well, I needed something to put my books on. I saw a piece of wood, put it on a milk crate. I got, nah. Now, I remember going out with some woman, and it was clear that she looked at a Pottery Barn catalog and just looked at it and goes, 
I want that. And she copied that exactly. It went, whenever I was at her house, it felt to me like I was in a fucking Pottery Barn catalog. I mean, and I started to see the stuff in the, like the actual things in the catalog placed like they were in the catalog in her house. And I go, you see, this is a, a yawning void of nothingness. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So, you know, uh, in terms of Oxbow, I remember with Whipping Boy, you know, thinking, you know, I, there was a time when I tried to audition for Van Halen, right? Really? <laughs> yeah, after they kicked David Lee Roth, uh, Eddie Van Halen did this whole big thing. We're oh, looking wow. For focus. We're looking for focus. So I put together a tape of me, like, essentially copying David Lee Roth, right? And it was really funny to do. Naturally, I didn't get the job, right? It was It was pretty funny to do. But then I was like, what if I didn't, what if I had never heard anybody sing before, right? Like, uh, and I've gone through this with tattoos. Like most tattoos are cartoons or comics, right? Sure. They're, they're, they're comical representations, line drawing representations. of. And I said, but you know, when people were making cave drawings, you know, these things have lasted 2000 years and you look at it and you know exactly what they were talking about, right? Um, I mean, you know, it may happen that 300 years in the future, people will look at a little, you know, squiggly devil with raised eyebrows and little bubbles over his head and not know what the fuck we were talking about. What does that mean exactly? But, you know, so I said, like, I want, I want to get back to, you know, element, elemental vocalizing. And, uh, and that's where the idea of like, in other words, what, what sound, what vocal sound do I hear in my head when I hear this music? Um, and it's always shocking to me to read to read reviews where they talk about my vocals not being standard because they sound like singing to me, <laughs> but it's only because that's the sound that's in my head, right? Yeah, so Which there's is like my like, like my house, my house is a reflection of the things that are in my head. So finally I've started to like okay, you just can't find shit anymore. In other words, if you have a couch in your house, it should not be an accidental couch. Right. And this matches how Oxbow has changed over the years. So I do have a couch in my house and I did not buy that couch in my house. A friend gave it to me. However, I went to look at it. I, you know, I re-envisioned it, had it reupholstered, taken care, refurbished, placed it. And so now it's a purposeful addition <laughs> to my life instead of this haphazard madness that it had been before, you know. Yeah, because I, I sit down and I listen to you guys play. Um, the you know the records live live is a different story, but the records yeah, yeah. are, and I just ponder like, you know, there's it's almost like this atavistic sort of channeling, I guess. With what I, I, that's the only way I could really describe you. That's how I describe you your vocal style to other people. Well, we also we also do something that's that's disorienting, right? For yeah. like the way I remember for. Um, for Thin Black Duke, we actually yeah. spent six six months working on like a ten second section of a song. I don't know anybody else who does that, right? I and certainly and am. I'm sure, yeah. If we had other people in, they would. Be, Are you fucking kidding me? But we're going to practice Tuesday and Thursday, sometimes Sunday, and that's what we were doing, you know, uh, just working on. And of course, I wasn't singing at all. I wasn't singing at all. Um, but I was going to every practice unless we're seeing old songs mm -hmm. because everything I did with whipping boy I didn't want to do again with oxbow. So the first time I sing the song in front of other people The producer is there the mic is on and we are recording it 
but it's not like I don't know the song. I've been thinking about the song for 10 fucking years, in the case of Thin Black Duke, for 10 years, you know, and the vocal quality, you know, was drawn from 10 years of listening to the song, having written the lyrics, and very specifically knowing the emotional tone and timbre that I wrote the lyrics in, that they evoke in me, and that I need evoked in a listener, and that matches the music, right? So, again, it's not an efficient way to work, but, you know, we're not, this is not work, right? Yeah. Work is something that happens with regularity that you need to do every day. This is not, this is not work. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, I fuck around with vocals, and uh, I'm always looking for, like, a different angle, I guess, you know, sometimes. I mean, when you write your lyrics, do they, are you, do you pull that content out of something that's already exists, or do you write them as a, a reflection of the song itself? Well, it's changed. Initially, initially I had sound ideas. Right? Well, initially I played stuff, so like two songs, and I gave those. I think Bullseye was one that I had written myself. Right? I gave it to Nico, and he came back with music. But now, for a long time, Nico. I mean, we we all understand what Oxbow is at this point in our bones. So Nico would say, "Well, these are some songs," and I would come up with some lyrics, and then we would kind of fit the I go, the songs need to be in this order which means that whatever order that you end up putting the music you gotta they have to match up in the same way I don't give a shit what the music for the song sounds like that will only affect my performance in the end but the lyrics have to go in this order so he'll yeah. so he'll do so he'll do he'll do the music match it up and then once I know which set of music goes with which lyric then I go through the process of, um, and, and, and first of all, I should say from the very beginning, and this has continued, the lyrics have always come first. Interesting, yeah. Okay. Oh, like, oh, like, like, because oh, I'm more efficient, maybe. It's just a different process, easier for me, maybe, but they, they always come first. So I'm looking for elements in the song that recall how it is that I'm feeling when I'm writing. And I think the problem, I call it the James Hetfield problem. Right. The problem with a lot of vocalists is that they use vocal placeholders. You know, yeah. in the old days we used to call them scratch tracks. Mm -hmm. So if at any point Hetfield's on stage and he doesn't know what to do, he just goes, "Yeah," you know. I mean, he's got that's his signature thing, right? Yeah, it's definitely. Thing, but but it's it's it's, it's a cipher. It's, it's it has zero kind of artistic impact at this point. It's just something to say there, you know. Um, and you know, Danzig has one as well. Um, cause he's like, well, I just got to put something in there. I think part of that happens because these guys play instruments as well. Yeah. Right? I, f I fall into that same pattern. And, uh, like when I write, I write the, the guitar parts first, the music, and then yep. I'll, you know, come up with some vocal patterns, but it's like the, the pattern is almost like this, like stem cell or something that's got the DNA for like the whole song in it. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah. And then I just yeah. kind of craft around that. So yeah, it's just, it's, that's a, well, the, I, but see, I, I realize that, and if you play an instrument as well, yeah. I usually I'm okay. Like I like I like if the guy plays guitar and he's singing, in my mind, then I go, okay, fuck it. You know, he's he's he wrote the song, he's playing the guitar, he's got a lot of shit to think about on stage. Like Hetfield goes, yeah, and I'm like, okay, whatever. But it's when you got a, a vocalist who's not playing, yeah. and he's just up there, and he's being lazy. I just I just don't understand it, man. I, uh, I don't understand it, you know? I've always wanted to ask you that, just because, like, I'm always trying, like, you know, it's like it's like fighting 
Southpaw versus Orthodox. If you're like naturally yep. Orthodox, you want to switch up your stance to try out different things, different angles, different movements. Mm. And like, I'm always interested to hear, especially vocalists that I, I enjoy listening to and the output I think is interesting. I'm always trying to find like other, just just little things to try out. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, yep. I always wanted to know, ask you that question. Well, but that's what, I mean, that's what you're, well, you know, I mean, like uh, that kid, uh, Ryan Kent, uh, just that he's do he, um, are, he lives in Virginia and there's a, you know, the weekly publication is called RVA. And so he's wanting to do this thing where he's taking guys who are in bands or people who are in bands and getting them to write poetry. Right. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, you know, he always wrote what he was made fun of for, for it when he was a kid. And then, you know, of course he could write lyrics and say that, right poems and say there were lyrics and the people would get off his back because then he was a guy in a band and he does have a band now but he wanted to do something like i just want pure poetry and i figure if people in rock bands are doing it it somehow makes it cool and so like kids like me who grew up just wanting to write even poetry won't feel like dipshits i go yeah yeah i got i got what do you want because i want you to write a poem for me you know i go man you just said that he just i'm way too busy so i wrote him this poem uh that he's going to published i think next week and um it's called in the hotel in the hotel room of a hooker or something like that i don't, I don't remember the full title and um i, I re- remember as i was writing it that uh, uh, this would probably be cool to sing right i mean i could probably repurpose this as a, as a lyric for something um, but then i'm really bad with saving shit like that so i told him if you lose this you have to know that I don't have a copy of it, I, I don't, <laughs> and and I won't remember I did it, and so don't lose it is what I'm telling you. you know? But did you actually because write well, this on paper and send mail it to him, or? Um, no, no. I, well, sometimes I do. So okay. I'll, I'll, at this point now, like I'll write shit on paper, and I'll just take a photograph of it and, and text it to the guy, right. or, or or in this case, I actually wrote it. But that doesn't help. I got fucking seventeen thousand emails. In my email. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah. I I would. And how many times have I used the word hooker? You know, it's, I can't search on that stuff. I use the word hooker a lot. You know, so. Um, but um, but no. I mean, I think I think I think trying to, to, uh, trying to. I mean, I always say this is a conversation. My problem with a lot of bands is if you're sitting on a bar stool next to me. And we're five minutes, six minutes into the conversation and your tone hasn't changed. I'm fucking out, man. That's what I got, like a lot of grind core. It's like, fine. I got eight songs from you. I got 45 minutes invested in hearing you play. And vocally, you said the same thing for eight songs. If I was in a bar, that's a guy who I would punch in the face. I'm not going to get lit. I'm not even going to let him get eight songs in. I don't. It's the same thing. I heard you the first fucking time, you know, um, but Again, if you're writing lyrics just as placeholders for music, then that's on you. That's your fault. It's not my fault. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's just always, you know, it's always interesting to hear that kind of stuff. Um, so now, when it comes to your spoken word stuff, you do you have you done a lot of tours? Like just out by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> I mean, if you if you think I've done the states and Europe for uh, for both books. Um, yeah, that was, that was, that was a lot. And, and so for the fight book and, uh, you know, States in Europe for a long, slow screw States in Europe, then long, slow screw came out in translation in France. So that I had to go back to France 
And now this year, uh, it's going to come out in Italian. So I'll probably go back over to do it in Italian. I mean, I don't know what the fuck. I'm not doing the, the spoken word piece in Italian, but uh, they somehow appreciate it more if you just show up, you know. So. Yeah. Are, are those like performances a different type of material that's sort of inspired by those two works, like those two different books or are they passages out of the books? I haven't seen you do that. Well, what's weird is I went through a couple of different phases, right? And it is it is pernicious. It's really dangerous. And I talked about this on the show. Anybody who stands on stage behind a microphone, you know, there's certain things that you like to have happen. And you can't, I don't give a shit, Miles Davis, anybody, but in a gen, very large general way, what you're expecting is to be positively received. And the things that the things that you do that garner greater positive response are things that you like, right? Sure. And that's why anybody who does spoken word inevitably ends up trundling into fucking comedy. And I don't want to do that. I absolutely didn't want to do that, right? I think only because I think stand-up comedy is a fucking super difficult art form. Sorry, I don't even give even like somebody like Gallagher. It's a it's a bona fide art form in my mind. And it's not to be stumbled into. And that's certainly not, if I want to be a comedian, stand-up comedian, set out to do that, that would be one thing. But I'm not. I'm doing spoken word. And in the instance of the books, that's slave to the book. So at first, I was doing this thing where I was trying to be entertaining, where I was just telling ra- you know random stories and that leaned heavily on expected joke lines. And I felt like, man, that's, that's not fucking going to work. I go, okay. So I got this book out. So what am I going to do? I said, okay, I'm going to talk about this book with stuff about the book that's not in the book. Because those stories are great in and of themselves. You know, like the woman who, who signed the fight book had, had just been busted for having an affair with this guy who was a big wig at the 9-11 recovery effort, Bernard, uh, Bernie Carrick. You know, who was like an FBI guy in New York and he was like, you know, this kind of macho cat. And they were like, had this expensive apartment overlooking ground zero where they would spend their afternoons fucking, right? So I go, okay, I'm going to talk about that stuff, stuff that led up to it. And then I realized that it was a fundamentally dishonest exercise as well. Because anytime I talked about myself in connection to these stories, especially connected to the fight book, I was kind of, you know... uh, I was kind of, um, I mean, you can't help it. You, you know, you, you, you're your, your best PR person, but I realized I was telling a truth about myself, but I wasn't telling the complete truth, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you were to hear that first tour on the fight book, you would think I was some kind of fucking superhero. But my motives weren't always clear, and I'm not always a good guy. And I go, can you tell those truths? So by the time I got around to a long, slow screw, you know, then I was telling telling aggressive truths that were making people feel fucking uncomfortable. But then when I had a long soul screw, which is, you know, it's a novel and dramatic, I decided that I could just act out scenes from the book, in, in, not reading from the book, but act out scenes from the book largely in the way that it happened as I was writing. And that was super fucking satisfying to me. I couldn't have done it with the fight book because it's it's it's... You know, it's not a novel, right? Yeah. But with with a long slow screw, I could do it, and it, it hit it hit all the notes that I wanted to hit. You know, people were, you know, they were caught up in the story, they were caught up in the emotion, 
and you know and they were um there were not a lot there were some <laughs> laugh lines but i clearly wasn't there for that and you know people yeah. were disturbed they were confused you know i had a few people come up after the show really angry with me you know um and uh whatever okay so now you're thinking about the work in a serious way i have succeeded you know so it wasn't purely like a promotional effort for you it was more it was another aspect of your expression then when you went out and did these these tours around these books then yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, the thing is, I got a history with Rollins that goes way back, and so I paid attention to yeah. to to what it was that he's done, and you know, God love him, and you know, he's he he's got uh, he's amusing, you know, he's droll, people laugh, and he's done some of these stand up comedy fest, and you know, it ties in, cool, it's good good for him, but that's not, you know, uh, I come from a serious theater background, so I, I kind of wanted that same impact that. Uh, uh, a friend of mine who's won a, at this point won a bunch of Emmys. I saw him do uh, Leroy Jones's play The Dutchman, and it was fucking as powerful as any Oxbow show. And so I was like, that. You don't see that a lot, you know. You see a lot of these theater kids who didn't want to go to calculus class kind of, you know, flouncing around the stage. No, but what he did with uh, The Dutchman was fucking stunning and exactly kind of what, you know, that's what happens when you see art that moves you. So that's, um, I mean, I'm, I don't live in LA, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have a big, I mean, I, I'm not eating off of the shit that I do. So it might as well be something that I like. Right. Yeah. Totally. Back to that same freeing aspect of doing things the yep. way you want to, you know? Yep. Yep. Ozzy confidential. It's different. Ozzy confidential. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's different than the other two shows you had. Um, so, I mean, how, what's the genesis of that? Like, how did that thing come together? I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's more of like you have guests, you talk to people, it's not just you, uh, there's not a whole well, lot of fighting talk on there. So no, no, not at all. Well, it's interesting. And it, and it happened completely by accident. One day, Friday, I was leaving work and one of the, uh, co-owners was like well, what are you doing this weekend i said well i'm going to the fight i mean everybody knows i'm big into the fight game and he goes oh you did well i mean so your weekend is shot i go no no I'm, you know i watch the fight on saturday i get back from vegas and i'll do my show he goes show i said yeah yeah i got a show i do on mma it's a knuckle up he goes oh cool and so he's looking at knuckle up and he goes oh i go what he goes uh it's on vox man I go, no, 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 it's on, it's on Bloody Elbow. He goes, yeah, Bloody Elbow is owned by Vox. I go, yeah, yeah, but he goes, you know, we compete against Vox. How come you're not doing that here? Uh, and I'm like, what, okay. you, what you, want me to, you want me to do a, a show I do behind the wheel of my car where I talk about gangbangs? You want me to do that? He goes, you're missing the point, man. You know, you're give, giving aid and comfort to the And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not doing giving aid and comfort to the enemy. What are you I mean, I put the U, the UR, my articles, I put you the URL up for the articles on the show. Fight fans come to the articles that way. They discover an Aussie that way. And they're like, oh, so then there was all this corporate pressure on me to fucking stop doing these shows, you know, uh, which is which is why I had the I made the, the, the early tactical shift to get it onto my YouTube channel you know, get it off a of bloody elbow. So technically I'm a guest on, I'm a guest on, you know, um, uh, if I did it and if the shoes fit and the care don't care preview, I am just a guest 
you know, um, and my own show is my own show now. It's on Patreon, so it's separate. But I think they start. So it, it was a big deal, big argument, got angry with each other. And I said, look, you guys, you're always pushing this shit that I do to the side. What you need to do is to think about how somebody, how our other competitors would use us, specifically like Vice. You know, I sing for Oxbow. I'm out there. I'm a brand ambassador. You guys should use. And I think they said, okay, well, fine. What what can we do to keep him busy with that kind of does that that he might be good at? And they said, come up with a a podcast idea. Why don't you do something like that? I go, cool. That I can know. So they brought in this woman from NPR, <laughs> who I love. I, 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 I yeah, love, but I, I can already her. see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she's like trying to coach me through it. And I'm like, you know, this is not really working for me. And, and we recorded a bunch of stuff. And it was just, it just, it's like terrible. I don't want, I don't, I, it just, again, it's about capturing the sound in your head. And I said, I don't listen to any other podcast because I, I have the same fucking sensation. It's like, voices like macrame you know i just and that you know the kind of ira glass and this american life it just this is it's like guys in high school who i wouldn't have given the time of day to you know and finally they just they kind of wrote me off they go okay well fine just go do whatever so i hired this guy who um uh uh jamie khan whose father used to like play keyboards for the fucking grateful dead and he's got the studio that we do a lot of recording at up in the city called the ruminator um and uh he understood completely what i was talking about i said the attack of the show i want to be it's more like sports radio than the podcast i want it and i don't get what are they going to beat me up i'm going to ask the questions i want to ask so um we did we ran through the first we did two or three and we played it for the woman from npr and she kind of goes oh <laughs> oh huh and she goes well i see what you're going and uh, good luck to you and so she was out so then i had to bring it in to you know my boss and he he obviously had talked to her and was up uh, you know not upset but not happy about you know and he goes well what do you think about this and i was like i would bet everything on this everything this is not only what America should be doing right now, but very specifically what we should be doing right now. You guys might not like it. You might not want to pull a trigger on it. That's up to you. But hear my words now. If you do not, you are making a big mistake. And he sat back like shocked and he kind of goes, uh, hmm, your passion is carrying the day. Fuck it. Go with it. So then they started signing checks and, you know, I could actually, I was paying people out of my pocket up to that point so people could get paid and, you know, um, and uh, we made, I mean, initially my version of it, it was still an hour long, but because of space and time and advertisers, whatever, they decided that hour was too long. But the difference is, I mean, it's what, it's what the show stomper would be if I had a budget and could actually get people in. I mean, as it is right now, I do it in my fucking house. It was coming to my house on Sunday whenever I get around to it. Well, I sit there in my dirty bathrobe and do the shit. I'm not gonna do that. But you know, this is this is a different thing. So, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of uh, you know because I'm you know, I'm involved in this shit and I see yep. how it's it's really disappointing in a way that you take something like radio, which is 
you know, basically a kind of a dead medium, really, in a lot of ways. Like no one, no one listens to fucking radio. Yep. And you take that sort of format and you superimpose it on this this new medium and sort of make it into the thing that it replaced. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, yeah. I hate when yeah. that happens, man. I just I just yeah. wish they would let people roll with it. You know. Well, I mean, that's the thing. You know, I, I like that guy on uh, Glenn Washington who does Snap Judgment. But it was pretty clear to me that what he set out to do is to do – I mean, it's like the Brad Paisley thing. It's like he – I talked to that guy, like Glenn Washington, separate from, you know, any kind of stage thing. And that cat is fucking fascinating. He's done – was like a fucking <laughs> – he's like, he's like a black James, James Bond, man. He's like uh, spent time in – you know, he was a station chief for the CIA, you know, and was like – talking about all these places he had been is, is multilingual. You don't get any of that from the show, but clearly, you know, he's a bright guy, like a Goldman Sachs bright guy and said, you know, I want to do something that, you know, that NPR might pick up. And so if you want to do something at NPR, what do you do? It's like when Chuck Berry used to get his pickup bands and he would show up and they would say, well, what are we playing? He'd just look at them like they were idiots, go playing Chuck Berry songs, man. <laughs> you know, you want to get on NPR, what do you do? Well, you got to play NPR songs, man. That's what you do. But, you know, freed from those constraints, the fuck? I do whatever I want, you know? So um, that's what Aussie Confidential is about. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I think know. I'm caught up on the show, but uh, what do you guys, what do you got coming? Is it a weekly show? Yeah, it's weekly. Okay. Yeah. So if you, if you go through Himalaya, you if you go through Himalaya, you get the shows early on Sunday. Um, if you, you know, just go through YouTube or whatever else it's Tuesday, but if you actually subscribe to it, you'll get it on Monday. So what, what's this Himalaya thing out there? I got to pay for this or what, what is it? No, it's or? a free, it's a free okay. app. It's pretty, it's pretty cool, man. I, I actually, it let, lets me, it's like, um, I don't know. It's kind of a more robust SoundCloud kind of, you know, okay. I, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, I just type in Himalaya app and I got it on my phone. It took me like 30 seconds. So. And I I, um, I get it through Apple Podcasts, so it's on all the yeah, other yeah, platforms too, Yeah, 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 that's, too, cool. Right? that's cool. That's cool, too. That works, too. So, What uh, what do you got coming down the pike with this show? Any- oh, oh uh, the, uh, the next one. <laughs> oh, man. It, it's me uh, walking around San Francisco um, with a guy who is um, dressed up in a fully historically accurate uh, SS officer's gear. <laughs> He's a immersive comedian who has disguised himself as Heinrich. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever walked around through the streets with somebody <laughs> dressed as a fucking Nazi, but in the time of Trump, you know, this has a very, it has a very different resonance. And before we took the trip, he was like, Hey bro, are you are you down with this? Of course, he said this all in a German accent. He was like, I go, what do you mean down with this? He was like, I do this all the time, and I'm telling you, it's good. And this guy's a Muay Thai fighter, so so to actually see him have fear on his face before we head out to the streets, he goes, it, it, it gets kind of hairy out there, dressed as you know the officer that I am. And I was like, what do you? He goes, I'm just trying to make sure when the shit goes down that you're not gonna run away. I'm not, I'm not gonna fucking run away, man. I, you know, I will fight. I will. I will stand there and fight with you in order to get the show in the bag. So, um, it's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting story. I mean, 
made better by I think he goes into when he tried to pitch it uh, to Dave Chappelle. Uh, um, but you know, I mean, it's comedy, but it's immersive comedy, but it's dark, but it's weird. So it's, uh, <laughs> in so far, I mean, after the, the crack horror one for me, it's kind of like, uh, it constitutes comic relief, you know? Yeah. That was a heavy story for sure. Yeah. 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 And that's, and there's stuff with that that I'm just kind of, I'm hoping that she's, you know, I, 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 I spilled a little bit on the show stomper. I uh, talk about the the unnamed uh, child molesting family member, which was an actual fact, her father, um, which is just so fucking heavy and dark that it, one, I, you know, I mean, they went to court and it threw out they threw out the charge. So I can't be calling the guy a child molester in weird life in real life. But I just I kind of want to end the story where I ended it just so people didn't fucking kill themselves after listening, you know. So this is the kind of stuff you have in store for everyone on uh, on Aussie Confidential. That's uh, that's cool. Now let yeah, me ask you a real I'm, quick question though about this gentleman uh, that's in the garb and how should I put it? Is he a, a man of color or is he a white man? <laughs> well, it's not entirely clear, right? Yeah. He's not a he's not a he's not a man of color, but you, you look at him without the Nazi gear, and he doesn't necessarily strike you as a white guy you okay, know so it's ambiguous okay yeah he, he he's pretty racially ambiguous you know <laughs> um and, and he shaves his head so i think if he had his hair out it might be a giveaway you know um i mean i at this point know that he is in real life persian oh, um okay. but um yeah, but there's, uh, you know, there's that concern, like, yeah, okay, if you're a Jewish comedian, then you can make fun of Jews, but you can't make fun of Latinos. If you give a, but he's, uh, you know, by choosing a Nazi, he's, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, it's just fucking it. And what made it best was that when I came, that was one of the ones that we worked on with the NPR people. <laughs> oh, man, dude, they must have loved that. <laughs> So they, they all hated it, you know, and I was like, no, it's got to be on the show. It's got to be. there. I don't give a shit. Fuck you. It's got to be there. I mean, just because it's just so fucking weird, you know. Um, well, I, I mean, mean, this is important, though, man, because honestly, it's like I, I I brought this up to several people where, you know, nowadays, I mean, going back, going back all the way to Lenny Bruce. OK, a guy like him yep. who has basically put his life on the line for the the right to or the ability to to say whatever he wants on stage and yep. you know there was yep. le- legislation he was fighting the government to actually speak his mind okay yep. Yep. the 80s we got Howard Stern we got you know yep. all the, you name it all the people who contributed to that victory for free speech and now it's the actual citizenry who is speaking out against people speaking their mind so well well, because people are not being honest about what they're talking about, because there's a legal standing, and the legal standing, it, it all all kind of coheres around uh, the word, uh, fighting words, right? Right. So, like like uh, Justice Stevens once said about famously said about pornography. I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. So what they're what they're talking about is there's certain things that you can say that a reasonable person will react negatively to. Um, in a significant way, like they'll fight you for it, right? They're fighting words. So like what? Like, okay, well, if you say something about somebody's mother 
most people are going to fucking flip. Uh, you know what? The idea in my mind of a free speech should, should completely skirt the whole fighting word statute. It's not my fault. You can't control yourself. You know, um, in fact, the la- some of the last fights I've gotten into because I'm mindful of the optics of it as well as legal, you know, repercussions, I'll goad the guy into taking a, a swing at me, right? Mm-hmm. And typically I'll lean in, nobody can hear what we're saying, and I'll say something to him that's upsetting. And I mean, don't think that this was like 10 years ago. <laughs> I was two weeks ago <laughs> walking, through the, walking through the mission with my wife and some guy, you know, started with me in an ill-advised maneuver where he thought I wasn't going to say anything. And, you know, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> that's a side note. I don't want to get into that. But the point, <laughs> the, point, the point is this idea that fighting words means that we can prescribe speech lest somebody, of uh, you know, get angry enough to want to take a sweet swing at you. Yeah, it's like, okay, if you got 100 rats living in a shoebox, you might have to make accommodations so we don't all kill each other. But generally, I still feel okay about words, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all changing. It changes even geographically. I mean, take take the word cunt. You know, that's like you got you know you, you can have a problem with somebody if you throw that word around in the states. However, in the UK and Australia, that word is like totally yep. acceptable. Yep. Yeah, but I mean, those, those words that we kind of typically dismiss as Anglo-Saxonisms, right? Like fuck, shit. You know, Lenny Bruce's famous eight word eight words. That's not even really what we're talking about these days. Yeah. I mean, people are people are trying to parse out upset and outrage and everything. I did a TV show with some guy. Guy doesn't know me from fucking Adam. And at one point, they're asking me to describe something, and I describe something as namby pamby. And this guy flips out on me on the show, and he keeps trying to draw me into this fight over the my use of the phrase namby-pamby. And I acknowledge him, but then I go back to what I'm talking about because I'm not going to be drawn into this. Like people are always asking me about parenting. Like, oh, how do you keep your kids from flipping out in the supermarket? How do you – I go, you know how I do that? Because I, I don't fight with three-year-olds. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't fight with three-year-olds. It's like – Come on, it's time to go. They're laying on the floor. All right, I'll pick you up and I'll take you where I need you to go. It's simple. I'm not going to fight with you, you know. Same thing with this guy. With Na- I mean, he was gay. He was trying to make a, some kind of statement that uh, it, namby-pamby was possibly pejorative to, you know, uh, it, it, you know, that I was trying to be clever about using the word sissy. But I wasn't using the word sissy. I was using the word namby-pamby. I could have used the word feckless to better describe what I wanted to describe, but I didn't use the word sissy. He had made the connection between Nan, Mary Pammy and sissy in his head and was wanting me to respond to that. And it's like, you're having an argument alone. Yeah, so basically, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, and if I, you know, if I, there are words that like, uh, you know, like you, I hang out in a fighter community, but even in that community, there's just shit you don't hear anymore. Like, you know, we train, but I haven't, it's like last week, I think I heard somebody jokingly say, hey, you faggot. And I was, yeah. <laughs> and everybody turned on him and go, the fuck are you doing? Yeah, that what word, that word's taboo as well, man. Yeah, yeah. I don't but no, but that. it's not, it's not so much, it's not, I don't mind it being taboo because we, we, we say we run a family gym. I got seven year old kids here. I don't want True. them to hear that shit. And the reality of it is, why would you say that if you could just say gay? You haven't illuminated my description. I understand 
what you say. I mean, if you mean that the guy is somehow weak or ineffectual, whatever, bro. I mean, switch up your language. I don't care about the language, but at the same time, uh, you know, I don't need cops policing my language, you know. So if somebody wants to say cunt or faggot, good for you. That's that's for you. For me, no. In my place of business, no. You know, if if there are kids around, no. If that's how you want to express yourself with your friends, go ahead. You know, if you want to do a show or have it on your shirt, go ahead. You know, it's none of my business. So back to the band real quick before we wrap this up. Um, it's been it was like ten years between Narcotic Story and uh, Thin Black Dude. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's like you know bands like form and disband like within that period of time you know yeah that's true yeah. so uh you know let's hope that there's not another 10 years between the next album oh so, no 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 no. We, we've decided to very specifically to spend 2019 that's why we're doing this show on january 29th in san francisco and we're putting that shit to bed like we'll do something really special in 2019 but otherwise we got a record to do and we don't want to wait another 10 years so Nice. That's awesome. That's what I wanted to hear, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear yeah, that yeah. Yeah, you guys yeah, are working yeah, on yeah. new material, and I just yep. have to keep my eyes open. Yep. Yep. I was just, when you called, I was just listening to some of the new stuff. So cool. Um, I mean, we have eight new songs. Actually. Oh, please. Yeah. It's a whole <laughs> record, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, no, it'll be, we have 12 total. So, uh, but Chickarelli has given us March, and he's given us October. So, yeah, we're ready. Mm. I'm glad to hear that, man. Well, thanks for uh, taking time out of your day. And, um, you know, once again, man, I appreciate the generosity of your time. So now, now, now how does this work? When is it? When is it? This is going to be coming up. Just... This is going to be uh, posted in, uh, in, in March. Oh, good. Beautiful. Yeah, it's like Beautiful. six weeks. There's like a six weeks lead, six week, yeah, a six week lead time. Between right, when right. I record it when it goes up and it's, you know, it's a weekly thing. So. Ah, okay, that that that'll be cool. Yeah, I did the uh, Jim Goad's group hug thing, and everybody was thinking it was going to be fireworks. But Jim Goad and I fundamentally like each other, so yeah. it was it was a fun show to do. Now I'm a so. fan of Jim Goad. I like all of his writing and everything, and you know, answer me and all that sort of stuff. I just like oh yeah, it gets a little tired though. I mean, because I, I kind of feel like a lot of his like racially driven stuff is kind of disingenuous, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, and that's why Gavin, the Proud Boys Gavin, had wanted to put us together when he was still at Vice because he thought they would get fireworks. And when Joe Gold called me, I was like, I got to tell you, man, I'm just I'm just not interested in that race shit. I don't care. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> no, yeah. I just don't care, man. I, I'm sorry. If, and then when he saw that I wasn't, like, joking, we just talked about other things. So, um yeah, I, that's, you know, I'm not fully I mean, up to date on his on his show. I mean, I, I checked out a couple episodes, but then he no, no, no. But this, this was for something that Gavin had wanted us to write together, oh, right, like right, a, a long, you. a long time ago. And I was just not interested, man. Don't care. So, all right, man. Well, thanks a lot, and uh, have a good weekend. All right, Mike. I'll right, talk dude. to you soon. Talk to you soon. Later. Take care. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. We'll be back next week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio via web, iOS, or Android for one of the best metal communities in the world, exclusive interviews and merch, and so much more.